Okay, well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, bringing us together again this morning. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would teach us from it and give us faith and humility as we sit under it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, good morning, everybody. We are um, into chapter 15 of the book of Acts, and I thought I was going to do the whole chapter in one session, but we can't. So I added a week. I'm teaching in the summer, the next quarter, and we've already taken two weeks from this quarter because of the informational kind of congregational meetings we've had during a couple of Sunday school sessions. And so I just took another. I just stole another from the summer quarter by adding a week because of this. But I'm teaching next quarter, so I had to ask myself, and I said yes. So So this is chapter 15, so we need to jump in because there still is a lot to do, even though we're going to do it in two parts. All right? Let's read it. Some men came down from Judea. This is down to Antioch, all right? Pisidian Antioch. This is where Paul is ministering and so on. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart testified to them giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent. And they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, Simon, Peter, but it's a different way of saying that. So Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles but that we write to them 
that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church, or with the whole church, to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Bersabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren, and they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the, the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. Now you can see there's a lot there. That was very, it's actually very important for us to understand what's going on. And if you think about this passage, uh, there are four headings, the problem, the polity, the principle, and the pastoral solution. I don't usually do that, but it just was there. All these P's started coming at me. So the problem, the polity, the principle, the pastoral solution. We're only going to look at the first two today and the second two t next week. And this is where you really get into the, some of the, the more difficult stuff in this passage comes in that second half that we'll get to next week. All right? So let's think about this under the first section, the problem. What is the problem? Well, you see it twice. You see it once in Antioch, and then when they acknowledged the problem and sent delegates to Jerusalem, then it happened, then it comes up again, right? So Acts 15, 1 and 2, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The you there are the Gentiles, right? And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, you see that? This is not just some little side issue. This is an issue that requires great dissension and debate. And we'll see why more thoroughly next week. When they had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the, to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. And then you skip ahead when they get to Jerusalem and they've been welcomed by the apostles and the elders and the whole church, these delegates from the church in Antioch, the churches in Antioch, Chapter 15, verse 5, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying it's necessary to circumcise them 
the Gentiles, and direct, to direct them to observe the law of Moses. That's the problem. That's what they have to get together to discuss and to figure out. Now what happens in Acts 15 traditionally has been called the Council of Jerusalem. And it's, it's seen as the, uh, the first, uh, what we call church council, okay? Leaders and officers from multiple churches coming together, what we would call presbyters, that's, what the, that's the word in, in the New Testament, elders, church officers coming together and discussing a doctrinal and pastoral issue and, and deciding what to do about it, issuing a decision that ends up being binding on the churches. That's what we're going to see today. All right? Um, so that's the problem. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And it's necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, what is the source of that problem? Where, is this, where, where are these ideas coming from? These, these two passages tell us. Do you see it? No, it's not. The, the problem is not the law of Moses. Who's teaching these things? Well, you have two, it's, it, they're, 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 they're called two different things, right? But it's the same group. Uh, men came down from Judea, all right? And then, so Judea is where, is what? What's Judea? It's the region where Jerusalem is. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the capital region of the Jewish nation, right? It's where Jerusalem is. And so men came down from Judea, and then later in Jerusalem, some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed, okay? So that's what it says. They came down from Judea, some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed. So who are these men? Are they inside the church or outside the church? What's that? They're inside the church. When it says they came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, the brethren are Christians, the church. They come down from Judea, they come into the church, and they begin teaching the church. These are Christians. These are men who profess to be Christians. They've, they've claimed uh, faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Some of the sect of Pharisees who had believed, okay, so we're not talking about just random, you know, antagonistic um, unbelieving Jews, the kind of Jews that are always persecuting the church, these are Jews who have believed and they're inside the church and yet they're teaching something that's a serious problem. Now, so think about this. Paul had been, you know where we've been so far in, in the book of Acts, Paul had been preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and how has that gone for him so far? Well, he's had great success. You see over and over again, multitudes and multitudes and multitudes believe. But how has it gone for him? <laughs> At what cost? Uh, the last thing that happened, one of, the, one of the last things that happened, you know, in the book of Acts was what? He got, uh, he was stoned and left for dead. So they threw rocks at him until they thought he was dead and drug him outside and dropped his body off outside the city. All right, that's what, he's been, that's what he's gotten for his troubles, right? Run out of one city after another, stoned, left dead in another. And so he has stood against outward physical persecution from unbelievers, both from Jews and Gentiles. And that's one thing. But now, what, now what's happening? 
Now he, he has opposition from the outside. That's kind of taken for granted. And now he has opposition, not just from the outside, not just from unbelievers, but from inside the church. Do you see that? that he's getting opposition, not just from the outside, but from the inside. Now, which is worse? Which would you rather have? I mean, on the one hand, these people aren't trying to kill him. That's a plus. It's always nice. And yet there's a weight to this that is, uh, you know, when you're, it's one thing when your enemies attack you, you expect that, you're ready for that. It's another thing when, when you're, the guy standing next to you shoots you. You know, they call that friendly fire, right? Not very friendly. <laughs> you know, still kills you. you. You know, I mean, this is a, this is a, this is a more of an, uh, uh, what would you call it? Yeah, a betrayal, an emotional thing. You see this all through the book of Acts and, and Paul's epistles. This, is, this kind of thing is happening all the time. And so what are the, so there's a doctrinal conflict, right? These are doctrinal issues. What do you believe about this? Now, what are the results, what are the negative results of doctrinal conflict in the church? What are the negative results of, so you have division, so a, a, a destruction of unity. What else do you have when you have doctrinal conflict in the church? Destruction of unity, what else? People are led astray, absolutely. So the, what we're gonna see next week is actually the gospel itself is at stake with this question. All right, so souls are at stake. What else? Yeah, the name of God. So when, when unbelievers from the outside look in and see Christians in conflict with one another about what Christians believe, okay, they look at that and, 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 and mock, right? That's always the, one of the dangers. The ungodly have opportunity to mock. Discouragement, disunity, um, souls are at stake. This is serious business, right? But what are the positive results of doctrinal conflict in the church? That's right. Clarity. Clarity. This is, once you start reading the New Testament and actually seeing this, it's everywhere. Then you start reading church history, it's everywhere. It's everywhere today. Doctrinal conflict is a blessing to the church because it forces the church to figure out what the Bible actually says about something. All right? That, that clarity happens in the, in the context of conflict. One side comes up and says this, and the other side says, wait a minute, that's not what the Bible says, is it? We haven't thought about this real hard, but let's think about it real hard now because these people are saying this. And then clarity comes. This is a great blessing to the church. This is how it always has been. You know, the book of Acts is not some kind of pristine, peaceful, kumbaya kind of glow. No, it, they're constantly fighting. The, whole, the New Testament and the, uh, the apostles themselves, all the context of all the books that are written in the New Testament, practically, have at the core of them conflict, usually doctrinal conflict. And so thank God for that. So yeah, you've got negative results 
of doctrinal conflict in the church, the, the potential for negative things, right? Discouragement, disunity, mocking from the outside. But then the blessing of it is clarity. And that's what you see in this passage. What We're not going to get this today. We'll get to it next week. When the letter, the pastoral letter goes out, over and over again it says, oh, they were relieved. There was joy. There was rejoicing at, at this. Okay? There's real positive fruit from this. And we'll, we'll see that next week. Now let's look more carefully at the, um, the false teaching that Paul and Barnabas are fighting against, okay? He says, or they say, these teachers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved, and it's necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the law of Moses. And so what exactly are these men teaching? What, what is at stake? Yeah? Exactly. That's exactly what they're saying. They're saying that you have to be a Jew outwardly in order to be what? Well, what, yeah, in order to be a Christian, but what is the text? What are they actually, what word do they actually use? In order to be saved. All right, so the, we are talking about salvation here. We're talking about the eternal destiny of your soul, right? Now, we would say, you can say that in all kinds of ways. In order to be a Christian, yes. But the word they use is in order to be saved. And they say down here, it's necessary. Necessary for what? Well, for salvation, right? So that's what they're teaching. Um, Now, let's think about this. We know what circumcision is, right? What do they mean by teaching that Gentiles must observe the law of Moses? What does that mean? So when you read the New Testament, you see over and over again that, that the, the law, right? You, you see those words, the law, the law of Moses, the law of Christ, the law of God, God's law. You see all these kinds of words. And they don't always mean the same thing, okay? And so this is a good question to ask. What, do you, what did they mean by the law of Moses? Okay, yes. We'll, we'll, we're going to see that in just a second. What I want to do is first, before we get to that, the answer, is show you how um, the, the, the different ways that the Bible talks, that the, the word, the law, the term the law is used real quick here, okay? So we'll get to that. I think that's, you're, you're on to something. Um, sometimes when the, when the New Testament says the law, right, it's talking about the whole Old Testament, the whole Old Testament. Sometimes it's talking about the first five books of the Old Testament. Sometimes it's talking about particular, uh, you know, the moral code, the moral law. Sometimes it's talking about something else. All right, so Jesus talks about, um, he often refers to the law and the prophets, right? The law and the prophets. And that's a shorthand way of talking about the whole Testament. So there's this broad sense of the law being the whole Testament or part of the Old Testament. 
But then sometimes the law refers to the Ten Commandments. Sometimes it can refer to the ceremonial aspects of the law of Moses. So I just, you see what I'm saying? When, it, when they say you have to observe the law, well, what do you mean by that? Okay, so what do you mean by that? Uh, are they talking about the Ten Commandments? Michael says no. Nathan says yes. Nathan. Yeah. Okay, so... All right, so here we have to think about this, don't we? Um, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So it's necessary to teach them uh, um, not to worship idols. Is that controversial in the New Testament? Would Paul disagree with that? Would John disagree with that? Little children, keep yourselves from idols, the last verse of 1 John, right? No. Okay, so that's not a problem. Uh, worshiping false gods, worshiping idols. Uh, adultery? Is that controversial? No. Lying, murder, hate, theft, covetousness? No. Okay. Obeying your father and mother? So what we see... He's not talking, I don't think they're, they're talking about the Ten Commandments. That would not have been controversial at all. Uh, the Apostle Paul himself is always saying that we need to obey the Ten Commandments. Uh, Romans, here, Romans 13, 8 to 10. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. The law. Right? For this... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you, know, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, right? So he's not just limiting it to those particulars, just saying, you know what I'm talking about, the law. Uh, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. He's commanding that we fulfill the law. The Christians live according to the moral law of God. That's what he's saying. Um, he says, in fact, earlier in Romans that Jesus Christ came and both obeyed God's law and suffered the penalty we deserved for breaking God's law so that we would be able to obey God's law. The whole point of our salvation is not just to have your sins forgiven and go to heaven when you die. It's to have your sins forgiven so that, and to have the Holy Spirit and a new heart that is able to walk according to to the commandments of God. Romans 8 says this, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There was condemnation because we couldn't obey the law. We kept, kept, kept breaking it, right? But now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So this is not talking about, this last line is not talking about um, justification, being declared righteous by God. This is talking about what we call sanctification, actual obedience to God. Justification's here, no condemnation 
the point of this no condemnation is so that we might walk by the power of the Spirit in the commandments of God, the moral commandments of God, okay? So my point in all of that is to say this. Um, if, if that's what the, these, these men meant when they came to Antioch from Judea or the, the former Pharisees meant when they stood up in the, in the church in Jerusalem and said it's necessary to teach them to obey the law of Moses, Paul would have said amen. That's what I've been saying all along. That's why I say everywhere. That's what every letter I write says. Not in order to be, to be justified, not in order to be justified, but as what it looks like to live empowered by the Holy Spirit, what does that look like? Well, keep the law. You understand? This would not have caused great dissension and debate if that's what they were saying. So what is it that they're saying? They must be talking about the ceremonial laws. All right? For these Jewish Christians who've come down from Judea, the former Pharisees who stand up in the meeting and say this, for these Jewish Christians, these former Pharisees, there is no way for a Gentile to become a Christian unless he also first becomes a Jew. That's what they're saying. It's a two-step process for a Gentile. First, a Gentile has to become a Jew. What do you mean become a Jew? You know, you can't change your DNA, but that's not, they're not talking about your DNA. They're talking about uh, outward practices. They're saying that for a Gentile to become a true worshiper of Jesus Christ, they have to be circumcised and to keep all the statutes and ordinances of the law of Moses. Well, like what? Well, like dietary restrictions, like feast days, all right? The things that outwardly separate uh, Jews from Gentiles. You remember, and we'll look at this next week more, but just think of this as a placeholder. When uh, in the book of Galatians, when Paul, the apostle Paul is talking about what had happened in Antioch, he says Peter was there, and then these men came down from Judea, from James, from Jerusalem, and once they came, uh, what, what, did, what did Peter stop doing? He stopped eating with the Gentiles, right? He held himself aloof from them for fear of these circumcised party people is what Paul calls them in, in Galatians, right? The circumcision party. And so that was the issue. Oh, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't be eating with them. And they should be doing something different too. That's what, that's what these people are saying. They, not only should you not eat with them, they should change their practice so that now they become Jews. And that's exactly what he says. We'll look at this next week. That's exactly what Paul says to them, says to Peter. What are you doing trying to make them live like Jews? That's what he says. And he says in that passage in Galatians, the gospel is actually at stake here. To require Gentiles to live like Jews is a, a gospel-destroying, soul-destroying uh, doctrine. So we're going to look at that more next week, all right? So that's the problem, all right? Unless you've, you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved, 
and it's necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, real quick here, let's look at the way the apostles and the churches decided to handle this problem. We'll look at the substance of the debate next week, but how, what, what is act, what's the mechanism for them trying to f- figure this out? And so that's the second point, the polity. And I've got some sections highlighted here that are gonna bring out what I'm, what I'm pointing to, okay? So let's read this. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved, that's the problem. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, right? The brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue, therefore being sent on their way by the church. Now note a couple of things just in these verses. Uh, First of all, there was some context for debate in Antioch. You see this? You had teachers, and they come down, and they're teaching one thing, and Paul and Barnabas, there's some context where they can can get together or stand up in in public, or whether it's in public or private, we don't know, but there's a context for debate and dissension, and that's a good thing, right? You You want that. You want there to be some context where teachers, elders, officers, pastors can come together and debate and, and hash out these issues. Secondly, a plan of action was mutually agreed upon. Do you see this? The brethren, it says, determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So something has to be done. There's a problem it's causing dissension and debate, and there's got, we gotta do something about this. So they come up with a plan. We're gonna send delegates from here down to Jerusalem to meet with other pastors and elders and talk about this issue and figure out how to handle it. Third, there is a court of appeal. It says the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. We, we, we have... Here in Antioch, we have debate and dissension about this issue. We can't come to unity on this. We can't come to peace. Who are we going to appeal to? Who's going to help us with this? Okay, we're going to go down to Jerusalem. There's a body of elders down there that we're going to go meet with. You see that? A court of appeal. And then fourth, the church in Antioch was made up of multiple congregations under a single leadership. Now I'm I'm, I'm, you might say that's a stretch, but I think it's required by the whole context here. The church in Antioch, um, how many Christians are in Antioch? We, we don't know the actual number, but when you, when you look at the passages about Antioch, it's multitudes and multitudes and multitudes. That's the word that's used over and over again. A great many, a great many, a great many. Now, did they rent out the, uh, the Roman, you know, uh, amphitheater, is that where they had church? How did they, what did they do? Hmm? They're in their homes. In other words, there are, this is what you have at this period. You have the same, exact same thing in Jerusalem. Remember, thousands are becoming Christians. 
Where are they going to meet? Well, they're not going to... Sometimes they meet in Jerusalem in the temple. Okay. But that causes problems. Uh, they're meeting in, in homes. All right. And what that means is there are multiple congregations in a city under a single leadership. All right. And so the church in Antioch was made up of multiple congregations under a single leadership. They weren't meeting all together. They have separate worshiping assemblies all across the city. But there are elders in the church. We saw that back in chapter, beginning of chapter 13, the list of gifted men in the church in Antioch. They're not all in one little house. They're spread throughout the city ministering to the different congregations. That's, that's important. Well, I'll tell you why in a minute. Let's move on. Uh, Acts 4, uh, 15, 4 to 7. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying it's necessary to circumcise them, direct them, deserve the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them. So note these things. The delegation from Antioch is received by the assembled church in Jerusalem along with her officers, right? They were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. So to me, that says the, whole, the church gathered together and received these delegates, and yet there's a distinction. You've got the church, you've got the apostles, you've got the elders. And then what happens next? The, uh, the apostles and the elders came together to look at this matter. So this is, some, this is not a, a general worship service. This is, they're coming off to the side. They're doing, there's a, there's a, a meeting that's made up of the officers to look into the matter. Does that make sense? These are the elders. These are the presbyters. They're coming together to look into this matter. And that's what they do. The officers meet to discuss and debate the doctrinal issue. Next, uh, verses 12 and 13. After their speaking, it says, all the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered saying, brethren, listen to me. And so you see the members of this congregation seem to be present for the debate, but only to observe. That's a Seems like that's what's going on, the people. Um, That may not be the case. This may simply be the body of elders and and pastors and and apostles here, but it seems bigger than that. But they're listening, they're observing. And then secondly, the debate and discussion is handled in an orderly way. (laughs) Do you see that in in these verses here? All the people kept silent and were listening. And then... After they'd stopped speaking, James answered. So there's an order. It's not a, this is not mayhem. This is not a free-for-all. There's respect, order, appropriateness, all right, in this meeting. Next, verses 22 to 23. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren, 
and they sent this letter by them. Now, we're going to look at the letter and all the debate next week. But notice this. The decision was made by the officers, right? It seemed good to the apostles and elders. But then it says this, with the whole church. Now, what does that mean? There's some kind of, it seems to me, there's some kind, you've got the decision made. You've got the debate. It's been had. They've come to a decision. This is what we're going to do. But the whole church ratifies it, approves it. There's something going on. There's some kind of interaction here between the body of officers and the rest of the church here. And then the officers sent an official letter to the churches. Now, there's one more verse that I want to look at that's in the next chapter, but it's important. So this is chapter 16, verse 4. This is kind of the implementation of this, but it's very important to see what's happening. Now, while they, that's Paul and Barnabas, or Paul and Silas, I think at this point, were passing through the cities... They were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So what does that tell us? What is this letter? What what kind of weight does this decision have? It's called what? What is the word that's used for the contents of the letter? Decrees. What 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 is a decree? This is, not, this is, hey, this is how it's going to be. You know, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. This is not, you know, if, if it's convenient and you're thinking about it, you know, maybe you should think about maybe coming. This is a decree. So this is an authoritative statement. This is an authoritative document that's authoritative for whom? The churches. This isn't just the church in Antioch and Jerusalem. These are, they're going through the cities, delivering where there are Christians, where there are churches. They're delivering decrees, passing through the cities, you see? So a decision had been made that was authoritative for the churches, for them to observe. All right, that's very important. Now, the decision of the officers in Jerusalem uh, was binding on the churches. So put all that together and here's some things we can learn and then we'll be done. This is the, we see here a process of government, right? This, that's what we mean by polity, a government, a some kind of structure. Um, and here's what we see. Several local congregations operate under a governing body of presbyters. You see the church in Antioch. It's not just one building where everyone's meeting. That, when, when it says the church in Antioch, it's thinking about multiple congregations. Same thing in Jerusalem. Multiple congregations under the leadership of a body of elders. Those congregations and officers, or those congregations send officers as representatives to a court of appeal. That's what happens. Okay, the church in Antioch is disrupted by a doctrinal dispute. We're going to appeal this to the broader body of churches. And so they do that. And we would call that 
a presbytery, a synod, a general assembly. Those, those are the kinds of words that are used. A presbytery means the body of presbyters. That's what el- the word for elder in the New Testament is presbyter, right? That's where we get that word presbytery. And then those officers, when they come together in a general assembly or in a presbytery, discuss, debate, and decide a doctrinal issue. The whole point of that is to discuss, debate, and decide. Okay? And then those officers draft a letter. They, make, they, they come to a decision that functions as a what? A decree, a rule, a, a judgment that is binding on the churches. Right, do you see that? It's binding on the churches. They, they write a letter. It is to be delivered to all the churches and this is what you are to do. This is what we decided. We're not asking for your opinion on this. The, the presbytery decided and this is, why, this is what, it's, what you're gonna do. And then, and the way it was set up in that time and in that place, the local church members were free to observe the whole process. Seems like they were present for some of the debate, maybe all the debate, maybe as, as observers, maybe they left, maybe they, something's going on there. There's some kind of interaction between the church as a whole. And they're, 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 they're not the ones debating and deciding, but they're, they're probably watching because it, they ratify it. Or maybe the decision is read to them and they ratify it, something's going on. There's some interaction between the elders making a decision and the church acting, right? And so the local church members are free to observe the whole process. They have some role in ratifying or implementing the decision of the officers. They didn't make the decision, and yet they're saying, well, this is good, okay? So that is the polity that the church developed and used and put into practice in order to deal with this issue, with this problem. This is, what would we call this today? What's, what's interesting about this? Do the, are, are these churches independent of one another? They're not independent. There's a, I know. There's a decree that has been decided by the presbytery, that just means the body of elders, there's a, there's a decision that's been made, and the churches aren't, you don't get anywhere in this, get the idea that the churches are, you know, take it or leave it, you know, whatever you think. No, this is a decree, this is what you're to do, this is what we've decided, this is the end of this issue. Okay, so the churches aren't independent, and I know, like, our, our former Baptist pastor here just pointed out. <laughs> a good Baptist. Pastor, uh, oh, you spent, Pastor Tolman spent 40 years? 44 years as the pastor of an independent Baptist church. Well, that doesn't count. They, no. And so... I'm sympathetic to that position in a sense. I mean, I know the position. That's where I come from. And yet you have something going on here that, is, that doesn't seem to fit with that. 
that rugged kind of absolute autonomy that is common in, in American Baptist churches. You certainly don't see that happening here. All right, so this is an argument and a posi- this is the place where we go to, th- to find the, the, the kind of the, the nuts and bolts of a polity that is Presbyterian, okay? Remember, this is important. Uh, Presbyterian, what what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word Presbyterian? What? Infant baptism. Presbyterian, that word, has nothing to do with baptism, really. It has to do with polity. You can be a, you could be a anti-pedo-baptistic Presbyterian. <laughs> Absolutely, because it's polity. We're talking about polity here, not baptism. They're separate issues. And it's unfortunate that they get mushed together so that when, when everyone thinks Presbyterian, they think, oh, you're trying to make us baptize all of our... No. That's a separate issue. So don't think, when we talk about the presbytery that we're hoping to join and be a part of, we're not talking about making everyone into pedo-baptists. It's about polity. It's about government. One last thing and we've got to be done. Yes. Don't you think that it has something to do with reactions against the Catholic Church? What does? Is that Protestantism in, in America, North America, have, was it in part reactions to the control of Catholicism and papalism? Uh, she's asking whether the reaction of Protestantism, uh, Protestants are reacting against pres, uh, Roman Catholicism. Yeah, I mean, there's, that's part of it but it's much more complicated than that, that we can't get into it. Okay, everybody all right? Thumbs up for whatever you want to call it. I don't care what you call it. Um, next week, we'll look at the, the, the actual, the doctrinal principles, so the substance of the debate as they come together in this system, that how, what the debate is and what's at stake, and then the letter that they send and, and this pastoral letter to the churches. So that's where we'll go next week. If you have questions, uh, ask them, but we don't have time now. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would have mercy on us, that we would be wise and godly and discerning. We do thank you, Lord, for the gift of um, this passage to us and of the the gift of elders and pastors and officers that you have gifted to lead us and to uh, fight for your truth. Thank you for the blessing of, of conflict and the blessing of doctrinal disputes. And I pray that you would use that even in our day to bring clarity and unity to us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.